Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 58 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I spoke with Dr. Sarah Neuter, a professor of classics at the University of Chicago. Dr. Neuter writes about Greek drama and modern reception, and also about poetry, the voice, embodiment, and performance. Her forthcoming book is called Greek Poetry in the Age of Ephemerality, and she's also working on a volume called How to Be Queer, An Ancient Guide to Sexuality. She has also offered some advice on applying to and choosing graduate programs in classics in Eidolon. In this episode, we discussed how being initially forced into classics affected her career trajectory looked at course offering expansion issues at universities, and pondered how to make office hours more appealing and accessible to students. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thanks so much for joining me this morning, afternoon, time change, whatever. I want to ask you just a really nice, simple question, and that's how did you get into classics? Where did this love of the ancient world come from? Oh my God, that's a complicated question, but um, but thank you for having me. I'm delighted to talk to you. I was like forced into classics by my private school that I was lucky to go to in Brooklyn um, called St. Anne's, where they had all of us students take Latin as a requirement starting in sixth grade. And I hated it. I, I, I was very unhappy with it, but I was kind of compelled to stick around even when it became optional. And then at some point, something flipped and I loved it. And I started taking Greek. They also provided Greek. And I have to say, just may he never hear this, but I had a high school teacher I had a big crush on who was my my classics teacher. And I compelled me through the, I think the erotics of pedagogy, uh, all clean, nothing happened, but it, it it pushed me to see, to love what he loves and to see what he saw. And, um, and so it just became something that I did as a student and really enjoyed um, and felt identified with um, and then continued to do in college, but without thinking it was like a job. I just thought it was something that I could do as a student. Well, that's really interesting because I don't often hear of classics or anything 
like that being sort of provided or, or, or having people forced to take. So um, that's definitely a different path that I've, that I've heard uh, recently. So was it just like part of a core curriculum that you had to do or was it like a school more focused on humanities and so they wanted to build it in as a big part of your education? That's a great question. I mean, it's this school is ongoing. In some ways, it's a really loosey-goosey place. They don't give grades. They are very focused on the arts. But the style of education also concentrates on what might be thought of from a Western standpoint as the foundations. And so we first learned Latin in a course that was called language structures. So Latin was taught as a way to help understand how language works. So that's why it was required at first, but after a certain point, a year or so, it stopped being required uh, when you were just reading Latin to read Latin. And for me, part of what made me really dislike it at first, but like it later was that during the either we taught we learned the grammar very slowly we were kids and we took us about maybe two years to get through all of the grammar and I didn't really know so in such with my ignorance I didn't really know there were Latin texts that there was this world that we were aiming toward I thought we were just learning the subjunctive to learn the subjunctive that it was a sort of thing in and of itself um, and to me it seemed pointless and busy work um, and in, until I could see that it aimed towards something else it, it remained a sort of, um, yes, an exercise. And then it became part of, it turns out, reaching toward this beautiful world. And that that changed everything for me. Nice. Well, a lot of things start out really hard. And then hopefully someday there's a shift and it, it turns into something really enjoyable. I think I was talking to someone just a week ago who hated Latin so much they just, they dropped it. It was like an elective course that was offered. And then lo and behold, Four years later, they decided, oh, I'm going into classics. Darn it. I shouldn't have dropped it. I never dropped it, but I definitely found with Latin and with Greek that I had to keep going back and starting again, that I hadn't really learned it right the first time. Um, and that it was as I, I would then kind of fall in love later and have to, in my own, you know, for my own purposes, go back to the beginning. So, yes. Yeah, so I didn't, I did what I guess we're now calling quiet quitting. I would do it, but I would just do it in a kind of halfway way until I realized I really wanted to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, quiet quitting is such an interesting phenomenon. I was just reading an article about that the other day and I was like, is this really a thing? It's like a thing. Yeah. It must be a name for other things like feeling sad. <laughs> Well, you're feeling angry, not having another way to express it. Yeah, the description. I was like, well, that could be a lot of things. Be a but... lot of things. So it's a kind of Rorschach test, right? What you see when you see this idea of quiet quitting. Yeah, I'm a little curious now. If you hadn't sort of been forced into this, do you think that Latin or classics would have been something that you eventually would have come to on your own, just discovering it once you got to college? Or was it probably not something you ever would have found without having it there? That's a really good question. I um I think I've never thought about it. I think I have to assume I would not have found it because there was nothing in my background. I had no family members who were interested in Latin or Greek. Nothing pushed me to it except for, as it were, the requirement. Um, I think I would have found literature and poetry separate Separately from classics has always been really important to me. Unless there was a specific person who led me by the hand to it, I think I wouldn't have been able to find it myself. And who knows what that would have meant? Who knows what I would have found instead? Um, but in a similar way, at a certain moment in graduate school, I had always had an, a bit of an interest in taking Sanskrit, but just as a, it came and went. And uh, one day I 
was having breakfast with a friend and he said, oh my God, I went to this amazing Sanskrit class. You have to come. The professor is incredible. And so I went with him and then I, it like took up the next year and a half of my life was studying Sanskrit and was falling in love with it. And, and I either had to leave classics and really become a Sanskrit scholar, or I had to leave Sanskrit and stick with classics. And I decided to do the latter, <laughs> but it was another one where even though I had an interest in Sanskrit, to, I needed a, a sort of connection, a person, an external force to, to help me into it, um, which is where when I think a lot about will we continue as a discipline, who gets to do this discipline, I think about how do we bring it to people, right? Who are they getting it from? Not that you can't live a perfectly wonderful life and never touch Latin or Greek, but if it's a gift for a lot of us, then shouldn't it be a gift offered as widely as possible? Well, you're in the unique position of me being able to ask this because I don't think I've encountered anyone else who sort of was forced into it, which is okay. No one likes being forced into things. People like to feel like they had an interest and then they went into it themselves. Everyone likes to feel that. But just where we are considering the state of classics and, and humanities generally and just where we are, do you think it would be beneficial to have it be required more places just so we can expose people and then they can choose whether or not they want to go on? I mean, sure. You know, it certainly would be, be beneficial for we who are in classics. It would be great for the field, but who cares in a way, right? What's great for the field? Yeah, I, I think in, a, in many ways from from the sheer material of it and the intellectual engagement, but, but all the way over to the social value or the social cachet of it. Yes, it would absolutely be incredibly valuable to suggest, let's fantasize, to suggest that every student in public school in the United States should have two years of Latin to help them learn language and to think about the ancient past. And to, I mean, gosh, right? One of the things that's cool about that is that Latin is hard. And so teaching Latin presumes a respect for your students and their abilities to grasp something hard. And by and large, children are incredibly smart, you know, and 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 giving them expectations to live up to usually if you support them, I think, pays out beautifully. Right. So to meet every single student in that place and say, like, I think you can do this and I think you should do this. And then you let them go. Some of them leave it forever and that's fine. Um, and some of them might find something that they love and keep. But yeah, I, I mean, I just. I think it's an amazing opportunity. And of course, it links to our idea of education and you know Western civilization and all of these ways that can be very problematic. But you can also, as it were, weaponize that. You can take that and use it for good. I would, I mean, I would love to see that happen in our system. I have I have no no blind hopes that it's about that. <laughs> but I would like to see it. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. And so I'm a little curious, once you did finally get into it, and then you got in this beautiful world of exploring classics, how did you decide on a specialty? Was that like a hard process to figure out what you really were into enough to pursue it at the you know undergrad graduate level? Or did you always kind of have an interest in one area? I mean, I think that part was easier because again, even bef before I thought of it as something that would be a job or a career path, I've always been, maybe I've been a little too eager to know what I liked. And I read my first tragedy in high school. In, that is my first one in Greek was the Bacchae. And then when I got to college, that happened to be also what we were reading the first semester, which was fine because it bears rereading them. And I went to Amherst College. We had a small department, um, but a, a nice, strong, if small Greek 
co like Greek professor world. And they were very, very supportive. And they were also willing to kind of follow what we were interested in. We a small group of students. And so one professor kind of asked, what do you want to read next next semester? And and so I got to read a lot of Greek tragedy. I pretty early, early on decided that that was something that really appealed to me. And I read a lot of it. And if there was a problem with my education in that stage, it was that not thinking I was going to go into classics. I wasn't especially responsible about getting a wide range. I didn't do a lot in history. There are many, 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 it was mostly holes. Um, but I got to dig incredibly deeply into what I found interesting. Um, and in a certain way, I just stayed right there. I mean, I've, I look at poetry and other things, but, um, but that the early stuff was the stuff that I found was what I loved. Um, and I don't think that's an accident. That is, I don't think if I had been introduced for some reason to like Herodotus, that I would now be studying history. I think I actually was lucky to kind of stumble into something that really appealed to me in a very critical way. Yeah. And I'm also curious now, I, I saw you, you've done work on a lot of reception and stuff with the, the theater and tragedy background. So before, like, were you always interested in modern theater anyway? And, and then when you saw that there was like these awesome Greek tragedies, <laughs> was that like a, just sort of like a secondary, oh my gosh, wait, yes, now I can combine these loves? Or was it the other way around and you sort of got more into modern theater after? You know, it, it's interesting. I do love theater and I, I did some playwriting and such when I was younger. But for me, the entry point was always poetry. And what was fascinating to me about tragedy was that it was poetry but it was a particularly complex form of it. Um, so that, you know, as, as you know, a tragedy has lyric portions and it has iambic portions and it has all these different registers on which it works, therefore as poetry and different voices and different under, you know, under the text ways of communicating and, and singing and being poetry. And so when I was a kid and up and through college, I wrote poetry and I read, I was also an English major. And, and so, to think of the importance and the complexity that tragedy could bring to poetry was really fascinating to me. And so theater, yes, but poetry more. And the reception work, which changes as I as I sort of age through my, my job, but it's been a way for me to bring, you know, when I became officially a classicist and I went off to classicist school and, you know, left all those childish things behind, at, you know, at first you just do classics, but I've especially in those days, reception was not really considered a viable part of a career, right? It was something you might do on the side, but it wasn't, it couldn't really be your central specialty. But now I, I think the world is much more open. I feel much more secure and, and doing work with reception and comparison has been a way to kind of reincorporate many things that I initially didn't feel really belonged in my in my like day job um and so it's it's really exciting to me that I get to I get to be a classicist but I get to be a classicist who also is reading modern plays and modern poetry and thinking about how they connect and how they reflect on each other yeah that's awesome so I also heard a statement I forgot who said it but I heard a statement quite recently from someone else who is, uh, I think, specializes in ancient theater or poetry or something. But I would love to hear your thoughts on the, the statement, which is that modern theater, particularly musical theater, mm. is the closest thing we have to 
ancient Greece and the closest form of reception we have because it's the only thing that sort of even comes close to what the ancient Greeks and Romans were seeing. I want to know from your perspective, do you agree with this statement? Is it half right? Is it not really right at all? I mean, yes, certainly it's at least half right that the form of modern of musical theater, which brings in, as, which has a story and, and brings in, um, as it were, speech and song, is a nice reflection in some ways of Greek tragedy. And one of, my, one of the grad students at Chicago brought up a neat point of, I gave a talk about nonsense, uh, a certain nonsense phrase in the play by Aristophanes and the birds and what it's doing and how it might affect meaning and, and such. And he said, and I think he attributes this insight to his partner that, well, it's just the same way in modern, modern musical theater. And I think he used Greece as an example that you have these nonsense phrases that, that they tend to be there to signal a movement from, I guess, more staid physicality to more movement. So as we're an abstract movement into a moment where bodies are starting to move around and dance, that somehow you move through nonsense words, syllables into a kind of opening of what the body can do. And that's just a really fascinating insight. And it, it does come from exactly the comparison of a form that's using many of the same tools as Greek tragedy. One of the things, as I sort of said before that about Greek tragedy that's incredible is how central and important it was in Athens. And so when I think about what it was, it's always, that always enters into it for me, that it was not something just for a few people to see on Broadway who happened to like that sort of thing, and that it had this role in the calendar and in the society. And so in a way, it's hard for me to, even if you could say all these formal features line up with something modern, without that critical central importance, you, know, you don't quite get all the way to what it was. You don't get far enough. And so, so I think there, there are some really great ways that musical theater helps us think about it, but that I still, I feel the ache for the way that it also is doing all these things in its culture that we don't give, enough, we don't give the power agency to our theater to do in our culture because it just simply doesn't play that role. Maybe Game of Thrones does. <laughs> <laughs> but not. I was just thinking, I mean, is, is there a way we can change that? I mean, I know classics as a discipline is very interdisciplinary and I would always think to myself, oh, well, you know, so many people study poetry and theater and, and the ancient stuff. So why do we not have more interdisciplinary programs with like theater departments? Yeah. And, you know, it struck me because I remember as a freshman or a sophomore, I went to the University of Missouri and it was a poster saying there was going to be a one woman show called Clytemnestra. Mm. and they were encouraging classic students to go to it. And I said, oh, this is great. Is the classics department sponsoring this? Like, is this <laughs> ours? And they said, no, actually, we had nothing to do. We weren't even consulted. They just asked if they could run it with us to use our name as <laughs> well, Greece. So I said, oh, well, that's interesting. So I feel like I hear things like that. So I'm always like, but why? Why isn't it more interdisciplinary? Yeah, I mean, often there, there are institutional reasons. On the one hand, I think that stuff is fine because we don't own we don't own this material, and you know nobody should feel that they have to get like check of approval from the classics department before they before they do their one woman show. Um, but it does speak to yes, it's a kind of parochialism sometimes on the part of classics departments and their thoughts about 
their, you know, their willingness to stretch themselves, to move towards other departments, to make partnerships, to open up what kind of thing it is we're willing to do. And some of that is just maybe a lack of time or, you know, there, again, there are logistical and institutional reasons for that. So here at Chicago, we have a core curriculum for our undergraduate students, but it's, I was a graduate student at Columbia where we also had a core curriculum and everyone took the same humanities class uh, called literature humanities. At Chicago, there are choices, something like eight options for your humanities class. And we used to have one called Greek thought and literature. And my sense was that one attracted students who were interested in, in Greece. And then some others got shoved in there who didn't get into their other first choices. <laughs> and that's fine, of course. But I, with a couple of colleagues, started a new one, a new series of courses called Poetry and the Human. So this course covers poetry from many different ages and places and traditions. And along the way, we do read some Homer and we read Sappho and we read Catullus. And now, and part of it, we also read Oedipus, right? So there is classical material, but it's not a classics course. And I think that that, it's not why I don't do it as classics outreach, but it happens that you may take that course for any number of reasons um, and then stumble across Homer or stumble across Sappho and discover something you didn't already know about. So that that's a way to bring in students who don't come because they're classicists, right? I mean, it's it's always a question to me, how do we bring this material to people who don't already know about it? Um, and so the interdisciplinarity that doesn't necessarily start with classics or center classics seems really useful to me. Um, and it's a little trickier that way, of course. Um, but you want to like, I think we have to be creative about the ways that we partner and also respect other traditions and other material. I think that that pays back in dividends because it means that like we're sharing the stage. And when you share the stage and then you have people who have shown up as it were for all kinds of different reasons and you, you widen the conversation. Um, so I think it's more challenging. Again, from an institutional standpoint, faculty are busy and they have a lot to do and they don't always have, you know, as it were, have time to be creative institutionally and reach, reach across the aisle and be in, interdisciplinary. Um, but it, when it, it's an exciting part of what we can do when we, when we find the energy to do it. I just think of it as kind of a, almost like a, an access thing. I know we talk so much about how we have to increase access to the materials and classics as a field just doesn't do great outreach. We do like to kind of look inward and make people find us, which I have always thought is really backward. So, you know, it's when thinking about working with theater departments or other interdisciplinary things, the ancient world on film has become a really popular class at, at a bunch of programs yeah. in the last even five years. So I'm almost wondering, is it is it something where maybe we should have the field, we, we should have classics itself reach out. So maybe, okay, the onus is not on others who might want to do some Greek-inspired material come to us and say, well, can you check this? You know, do we have your stamp of approval? Not at all, but it's more, you know, what can classics and classicists be doing? You know, what if we were the ones to say, to, to go to these departments and say, hey, guess what? You probably have a lot of things that you want to do but we can work together because we have this and this is how it fits into what you're doing. And we could do more interdisciplinary work this way and then increase access. And coming from Chicago, I have a friend who works at DePaul University and I remember their performing arts center just got like a multi-million dollar new building. And I just thought to myself, okay, well, like artists don't really become millionaires. Not really. I mean, it's just like classicists. So 
but like the combined power of these things put together it could open up new avenues you know so what can classics do maybe so put the onus on us yeah i mean i think one of the things you said was how does this fit into what you're doing right classics goes to other departments other institutions and that part of it the work of understanding the priorities of the other that you are that you are coupling with that's deep and and difficult work so i think knocking on a door and being like hi we want you to do our thing it's problematic yes finding a way to partner well what what are you what are you guys interested in this is what we're interested in how can we so that you don't walk in simply with your preconceived idea but you walk in with an idea that's still in an amorphous enough form that it can grow and change alongside what the other sort of players want. It's hard work. It's like hard human interactive work where the conclusion is not clear at the get-go, you know? So it's one example. So I think, I don't know if this got off the ground because I believe it began right before COVID, but we had a couple of grad students who wanted to do classics outreach at local um, high schools, I think. And I don't remember all the specifics, highly admirable project. But I remember thinking, you know, you can't really walk into a public school, public high school, and they have a lot to do. (laughs) And they have a lot of um, a lot they can't do. And they have a lot of limitations. And, you know, there's a there are many preset facets to the curriculum. They have to hit a lot of marks. They have to do a lot of testing. They have to provide so-and-so and the other thing for their students. They won't be able to do everything. They want, you know, and on and on and on it goes. So when you walk into that setting and you say, I want to do a thing on classics, you have to find a way to have openness for what their priorities are what they're trying to do for their students already and, and to care about that enough to then go home and say like, okay, well, that for I was going to do this classicy thing and I still want to, but now it's going to look like this because that's something that would, that would fit with these, these important priorities that these teachers have over there. So it's just, it's just hard. It's hard work. Um, and you, and it, there's a lot of process. There's a lot of openness that you need to have. It takes a lot of time. You have to build relationships. It doesn't all happen at once or it can all happen at once, but then it will also go away all at once as well. So I think it's just fundamentally difficult. And institutions are, are funny beasts where, you know, they things can move in phases. Undergraduate students are around for four years. You may not show up and hit the ground running. You may get interested and want to do something in your third year, and then you have two more, right? So, so how you get something going and then keep it going. If one faculty member is running something and then they go on family leave, what happens to it? You know, it's like, these are really human issues um, and it takes effort and energy and commitment and it takes all of those things. It's hard. <laughs> I mean, you're bringing up some really good points because I think, especially coming from the more recent student perspective, I don't think we think about these things. I mean, and and nor should undergrads. I mean, they've got a lot on their plates already, but it is something to consider when we sit here and complain, and I'm guilty of it too, about, oh, well, why can't we have this class? Or I wish they would have a class that combines these things, but well, university can't figure that out. Students should complain and push and want, right? I mean, that's how things happen. And But so we've seen phases of undergraduates where it's only we have this amazing undergraduate theater, like, student-born theater program going and they're doing these wonderful adaptations and performances and it's amazing and then a few people graduate and you know it goes underground Uh, right now we have a really fantastic undergraduate run classics journal 
and they're publishing scholarship and art and adaptations and translations and they have a website and they I mean they're making beautiful journals and they just I think they started about a year ago they get submissions from all over the country maybe beyond the country and it's fantastic and I very much hope that that is a tradition that gets established enough that it can continue but you see there's a kind of built-in instability there right because people come and go and so this is where the health of the institution and the forward-lookingness and and the ability as I said to create these relationships and look forward becomes really important so if I can try to connect some of these dots that we've been bumper carring around to, it seems almost as if, one, you have the institutions themselves, which they have their own agenda and they, they're, they're just, they're really busy. Mm-hmm. And so obviously they don't have time to do things. We have undergrad students who are also busy trying to figure out their lives in four years. And so that's not maybe the most reliable way. So it seems like from what we've both been saying, it's really student propelled when something good happens it comes from the students and we would hope for a lot of student involvement and so I'm almost wondering because by the time you get to undergrad as well it's kind of late in the game as a student because you're already trying to figure out okay well what am I going to do do I want to make money do I want to be happy do I want to try to find something that combines both all these decisions that come together I, I remember stressing about it not too long ago myself so how important maybe is it to figure out outreach to younger students and if we can get students to come into the college years already with an appreciation for classics to me that might drive up sort of the student onus on 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 getting stuff done or asking for things but you know it's it's so hard because so many systems also are not really the greatest about getting classical stuff to to younger kids so I think you're spot on. I I think that by the time these students get to college, they have to a large extent already kind of been pushed in one direction or another. And if there's not a ton of time to walk into a whole new discipline, especially when like, like classics, which involves the acquisition of a lot of skills and start there. And if you, a few brave souls do it, but it's not, it's too late in a certain way for many, many people. And that's, I completely hundred percent agree that the world where you get this material to students when they're young, when they're in middle school, let's say, that's the world where, you know, people have the opportunity to think of this as a resource. And even if they don't take any classes in college, you know, that, you know, maybe if they don't, God forbid, become a classicist, like this is, these are human resources and they're, they, they have, they help, they help us live. You know, they help us mourn when we are in a state of loss and they help us figure out what desire feels like. And right they're they're resources. They help us wonder about why language matters and all kinds of things. And they give us like versions of history that I think are really important as we go through all the crazy historical stuff that's happening. You know, there are just many ways that whatever you decide it is, whatever it's worth is, it's amazing material and it should be, it should be out there and it should feel accessible to, I think, as many people as possible. And by God, we have an education system. So why, you know, why should it not be there? You know, unfortunately, our education system, it's not in fantastic shape. Uh, so it feels it feels kind of out of reach. Now in the UK, I know that there are, I don't know, two to three kind of organizations that are working very hard to do this kind of outreach. And, you know, Britain is much smaller than we are. And I, I saw a few years ago, looked at their websites and gathered their numbers and it looks impressive. It's hard to tell how wide their reach is, but that kind of effort 
uh, to scale in the United States, what's hard? Um, you have to change norms and, and traditions. I mean, Greek mythology has quite a reach, and I think that has a lot to do with the arts and the way that we see these things being adapted in books and films that are aimed at children. So I guess there's there's a world where you build off of that. I mean, I think that my all of my interactions with like children and this stuff are very positive. I mean, children are really fantastic learners. They're little sponges. They absorb, absorb, absorb. They love to like have the details and inhabit these worlds. And, you know, there's a lot of space there. But again, for a faculty member at a university like me, I don't work in, in um, public education who you know who makes these decisions who gets these things done i'm not sure so I, I think it's a big and tricky question and there has to be a lot of will and creativity and it has to come from different directions it has to be in the arts need some initiative on the public policy side as far as education goes and you know they've got problems enough so it's tricky uh, but to go back to your insight you get there early right that's when um like the human, the human life and psyche and ideas and feelings about what could belong to you, that all starts really early. And age 18, 19 is a little late to, to start making big, big, big shifts. And it takes a lot of confidence and building and support to, to even have that possibility be available to people, I think. It's definitely going to be an uphill climb. But I mean, I feel incredibly excited and, and lucky to be living in an age where we have more individuals not just institutions being willing to reach out make things accessible for all ages I think this is where this new sort of cool digital humanities idea really comes out and then we say oh look at all the different ways we can get our message out whether it's podcasts whether it's the traditional film tv plays books I was talking to a grad student this morning who runs a chat room for on literature and it has hundreds of members. I mean, there are so many ways, as you say, to, to reach people these days. And as someone who's working within the field, you know, how important do you feel it is for all these outreach things, especially if they're going to younger audiences, let's say, um, how important is it for them to be accurate versus entertaining? Because I'm always kind of on the fence about, well, if we do it, it needs to be accurate versus, yeah, even if it's not accurate, though, we want people to get their foot in the door. Yeah, I'm a little more get your foot in the door because, well, let's see. Now I think of the movie Troy. I joked that the movie was fine, but their dactylic examiner was a little off. But, you know, there. I remember watching that years ago, and there is a moment, I believe, when Paris Menelaus, somebody gets killed like early in the movie and uh you know someone who as we know from greek mythology in the iliad survives the trojan war in classical tradition and and i remember having this moment where i was like well now i don't know what happens like now we've, we've gone off book now it's just some sort of open-ended um so it's hard not to find that grading as a classicist that people will walk out of this room to the extent that they do and and then feel they understand something about this myth or the iliad and but I honestly, I think for the most part, that's not an important discomfort. I think if people get excited about the topic, they go further into it and they learn more about it and they can they can get it straight. They can make it accurate. I think what's important is the sense of the stakes of the interest that like keep people coming to it. I mean, my own kids are are big consumers of Greek mythology in many forms at this point. And 
one of the interesting questions or topics they come back around you often is whether a version is right or wrong. Right. So what would it mean? One of the new, newer things they've come to are, are these graphic novels called the Olympians, I think. Do you know this series? I've heard of it, but I've not like read it myself. Very kind of impressive looking. Um, then they're the, my older kids are at the age where they read things without me. So I haven't read them myself, but they'll show me chunks or they'll they'll describe an anecdote or something. And they know that there is a lack of alignment with this version and some other version they read. So then they'll have these little intellectual arguments basically about what a muthos is, right? Like, well, well, is this one wrong? Because it doesn't align with this one, which somehow seems to have more of the authority of the ancient world, even though Dolera's mythology, of course, is not ancient. Which version is correct? Can there be a correct version? Where do you start, you know, like what makes a myth the myth? And then from that, we open into all the questions that you will ask in a college course and that people will write their books on and that we don't have great answers for, but it's a really wonderful way to think about human engagement and practice and storytelling. And if the authors of the Olympians or the other the other books and things that they read felt that they had to be 100% accurate, well, first of all, what would that even mean? And second of all, that would leave on the shelf all of these questions that they're asking themselves and each other and uh, me. And so I think, you know, just make it cool, make it interesting, make it fun, um, make it a resource for people that they want to have in their lives. Um, and then and then go from there and see what happens. You know, if you become a professional class, if you go professional, <laughs> then it's your job to be accurate, right? Then you are guarding the tradition and you can't, you can't write an article and be like, well, I didn't like this fact, so I made it cooler, you know, <laughs> bad, bad, bad. But that's scholarship and that's your, you know, you're guarding the tradition. Um, that's not the job of artists, uh, the job of people who adapt, the job of, authors you know or even the job of young students the job there is to keep it alive I think yeah I mean I, maybe it's just because we're in the like 100th anniversary of Tut's tomb being discovered maybe it's because I've got the centennial on my mind but I've been reading up about how much Egyptomania really sort of helped the field propel it forward make more people want to go in and study and I mean, okay, Greece and especially Rome, have, they've, they've always been very popular. But in terms of like recent things that are as big as kind of like Tut's tomb, I couldn't really think of anything. So, you know, we, we it's interesting because we live in this sort of renaissance time of people are suddenly big into Greek mythology or Greek history again, especially since the pandemic when people turn to video games like Assassin's Creed and you can suddenly walk around ancient Greece and discover things. So, you know, if we were to have like our own classics Egyptomania movement, <laughs> what what do you think that would look like now? Well, you know, I um, back up for a moment. I, I'm co-teaching a course right now with my colleague, um, who's a paparologist, um, Sophia Tralis. And we're teaching Greek poetry from the angle of whatever it is I do, literary criticism or philology, and also from the angle of paparology, um, which is in a sense, the study of how you read and decipher these, these ancient bits of papyrus that by and large come from Egypt. But it's also the history of the field. And as I'm sure you know, the history of the field and these these wonderful, exciting discoveries of all of the poetry of Bacchylides or King Tut's tomb are littered with deep exploitation in essence, right? Of peoples of history 
uh, sort of a tearing apart of like the world that's there in order to create the kind of version of the world we would like to sort of fantasize about, right? So that's not that's not without its cost or without damage. And you know, we can say the same thing about many ancient sites. We could say the same thing about how many peoples have been treated in the lands where we like find these things. And so I think that we are, at least right now, we're not in an age where we can think of discovery in a non-problematic way. So even if, even if like the next big thing were unveiled, I think we would have, we would walk, I would hope we would walk into it differently. And it would, you know, like we, the contextualizing would be such that we wouldn't get to sort of have our onslaught of fantasy in the same way. Well, look, that said, I am, um, I've watched a silly movie recently, which is called Red Notice. It's a Netflix movie, ladies and gentlemen. It's a, it's about art thieves and it stars Ryan Reynolds and Gal Gadot, another name, and another person, Dwayne Johnson. The movie starts by telling you <laughs> about, about how Queen Cleopatra had three beautiful eggs that were given to her by Anthony before he, you know, as a, as a symbol of his love. And these eggs have been the wonder of the world. And the, and the whole movie is shaped around the search for these eggs. And now, of course, such things do not exist. They're not part of the story in any way or shape or form. But it's interesting as a culture that that's, that's a way to anchor an entire narrative. We don't have these, these eggs, but we long for that longing, right? We long for the fantasy of the thing that is that valuable, like that encloses that much beauty and meaning. Um, and we, we think that the past and a kind of otherized version of it can give it to us. I would never want to squash that. But when it actually interacts with actual sites, actual people, actual other cultures and you know you can, you can run into some problematic <laughs> situations huh I mean you're right you're definitely right yeah no it's it's really interesting to think about I don't, again I don't know why I have in my world the big discovery has been the um the sap of fragments I don't know if you if this impacted your your side of classics much but every so you know we have these uh, every now and then in Greek poetry, you get the new something, the new Archilochus. Oh my God, we have a new Archilochus. And what does it say? And when, uh, you know, and then there are many, many publications and people talk about it in their conferences. And, the, and so then we had the new Sappho around 2004. And then came the newest Sappho, two poems published by Dirk Obink. And it's a very long story. And I won't tell it here because also nobody knows all of it. But something has gone very wrong with those fragments, right? Were they stolen? Is it that we don't know the provenance? Is it that they're not even actual authentic pieces of poetry? We don't know. But in the beginning of the, when these first came onto the scene, the excitement and, and it, as it were, the longing, the fantasizing about what it was to have this new poetry in the world overwhelmed a great deal of critical skepticism and brought us to a place where a lot of ink was shed on these poems before any, you know, people started to put together the pieces of what was missing. Um, so our desires, it's interesting how, how strong our desires burn, I think, and how it, it can make us uncritical in a way that is, and we can't, we can't quite allow ourselves to be. Um, so here, I guess I would draw a line between what I was saying to your question earlier about introducing classics out into the world and adaptations, and does it have to be accurate? And I'm, I feel very the accuracy as such is not really what we're going for. We're going for bringing people in. But on the side of scholarship, oh, you got to be careful. Um, you have to be careful about the material and careful about the evidence and also careful about your own motives and your own position and 
how things come into the world um, because because academics is not in an ivory tower. We actually do impact the world around us. And um, and I think being aware of being aware of that power is really important. I mean, yes. So I love everything about what you just said <laughs> because it because it's so true. And, you know, I'd like to say that a lot of people kind of have that constantly on their mind, but I don't I I don't I cannot provide statistics to how many people actually think about it that way. Uh, so I want to leave people with their own thoughts to, to reflect on sort of, you know, where they think it's going and what and what you just said and, and people's motives. And so I have three questions that I generally ask sort of to end the interview portion of the podcast. So the first one really is when you were a student, and this can be either undergrad or grad school or both, did you attend office hours? <laughs> And now I'm trying to think of if I attended office hours or if I made appointments. <laughs> um, I certainly talked to my professors. I really, really love talking to my professors. I mean, office hours is a funny institution and it either clicks and it works and it's, it's a wonderful experience on either both sides, I think faculty and students, or it's an exercise where you're not quite sure what you're there for and it can be. And so now I'm trying to think of the I mean, the conversations I had with professors at every level of my education and with teachers too in high school and, and earlier were so critical and so moving for me and so influential. And so the fact that office hours is there to foster that, I think is fantastic. I don't think it always works perfectly because it's a kind of, it's a sort of brittle frame <laughs> in its way. And sometimes those, sometimes instead they happen when you're walking from point A to point B. Um, so actually, I often, if the weather is nice and I'm having office hours or I have a meeting with a student, I'll often suggest we take a walk or we go get coffee or we, because sometimes I find that the the physical framework of the office is a little stifling and that, although I love my office and I, I think it's a very comfortable, nice space. Still, I, you know, I, to have, to be able to move around when you talk, I think can be nice. I think famously people have good conversations with their parent or their children in cars, you know, or you're staring straight ahead. And, you, um, and so, but office hours, you're often, you're staring at each other and that can be, that can be a lot. So office hours can be wonderful, but I think also loosening it is great. And I think that I did go to office hours, but that's also some of my best remembered conversations happened kind of on the margins of, of those like heavily scheduled moments. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would consider office hours either you schedule time to basically go talk to the professor, wherever that may be. It, it doesn't have to be like in their office. In their office, I'm taking you to literally. <laughs> it's like with, with the desk, you know, and for, separating you where you're, it's then it's like the tennis match with the eyeballs where you're like, okay, I want to, I want to look serious. Who will win? Yes. Yeah. And it's like, the, I want to look serious. I'm going to like, look at you in the eye like my parents taught me but then if it's like this unbroken stare then if someone gets a little uncomfortable then they sort of look away to the bookshelf or something all kinds of dynamics are awake in the room that maybe are, are not even. yeah yeah I'm just... uh, walking into the building the school building and and running into a teacher on the stair like classic teacher in fact there was some little thing we were checking in about oh yeah here's you know remember that thing we were talking about here's a... and we stood there for like an hour and a half and just talked and talked and and that that was an office hour right like that's just like the the thing is creating the space um yeah so that i mean i think you know these conversations these intellectual moments 
are so lovely and, and important as a student. And then also for faculty members. And I think that like the fostering of that space within, within education is, is so important. Yeah. And, and it definitely, I cannot stress that enough. It doesn't have to take place in the physical <laughs> office. Yeah. I definitely met professors all over and we would just start chatting. So totally relatable there. Even the category creates the expectation that, you know, faculty professors are there to talk. And I think that that's, that's great. What if, if you didn't have them, would students think that that was part of the deal? And I'm not sure, probably not. I don't think so. Well, the second question I have for you is, do you either as a student or as an educator yourself, do you have a favorite memory, a favorite conversation, a favorite something from one of these either in office hours or just completely ad hoc conversations? So I went and told you my stairwell conversation story. Um, when I was in college, I really loved my my Greek professor, uh, Rick Griffith. And um, in late college, I guess when I when I had like earned it, <laughs> He would sometimes we would have the form of office hours, but we would walk on there was an old train tracks that had been turned into a bike path essentially, and we would we would walk on that. I just felt incredibly lucky to be in the in the presence of of in his presence in this landscape and to you know to be sort of taken into all of that at once. And so yeah, that's probably where I got my walking idea from. That walking is good. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. I did not have any professor I mean well if I ran into one on campus and they were like rushing across to another class they would say walk and talk with me yes (laughs) but we didn't have like an intentional let's take a chill walk it was usually a very hurried thing across campus or to wherever but yeah no I mean hey I love office hours so much I had a wonderful professor at Mizzou uh, Dr. Barbara Wallach she's she was a bit older and and lovely so her office basically became my second apartment is kind of what I joke Um, she had the chocolate drawer and the tissue stack and sort of the comfy chairs and we were in this cool building so hers was like on the top floor with a really odd sort of slanted design. So so I kind of nicknamed it the attic. And <laughs> so uh, she had such cool knickknacks. So I would just live in her office. The space, the sense of livedness, of reality, all of these things are a big part of it, right? You don't want to go into some sort of antiseptic room and sit in an uncomfortable chair and pretend to care, you know, but yeah, all of this stuff plays into it because, you know, we are embodied creatures. And the tchotchkes, I will admit, they help. Their conversation starter, she had an action figure of the Cyclops Titan from the Hercules, Disney's Hercules movie. And it was on her bookshelf. And so I would always kind of go over and be like, wait, I just want to say hi to the Cyclops. And oh, I have to get a couple of tchotchkes in my office. <laughs> have a comfy, it's your half couch. And I think it, it does wonders, but no, I need a few conversation pieces. They're nice. It's like, you know, pseudo therapy session when you, when I would go in there. And then because I'd expressed so many times that I loved this one item, when she retired about two years after I had graduated, she emailed me up and just said, well, I need to downsize. I need to get rid of things. Would you like my Cyclops? And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> so I went all the way to Missouri to get this Cyclops. The afterlife of the office hour. It, it was so special. I love her so much. She's happily retired with her cats now. So I'm very happy for her. So she has time to read and do things now in, in her free time. So Milan, you can continue to have conversations with her. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, you've kind of covered it uh, a bit 
already. So, so if you want, you can add to it or not. But the last question I usually sort of ask in this series is, you know, as an educator yourself now, if you had to give a quick 30 second elevator pitch for why students should attend office hours, you know, what would you say? Well, I guess I would also add, I think there's a way we came to see the world better through the pandemic. I think that we had a, as a society, a culture, people have a better understanding of what we get from being in a room together. And I've always thought that actually the classroom seminar room say is very special. It's very special that as a society, we still value this, that there is supposed to be say, let's say 90 minutes where um, you're not, hopefully you're not checking your email. You're not uh, doing the crossword. You're not like doing your grocery list. You're not doing X or Y or Z. You're sitting there contemplating something with other people because we believe that that will, that something will come from that. That's really important and really precious. And that's the way you need to get it. And I think that's, that's just kind of an amazing thing, how much we value that. And I think then the office hour is another version of that, that I think takes even more account of the person as a person, right? When you go into an office hour, you go in as your whole self and your body language and your clothes and your backpack and your stuff and your, the computer you take out to show, you know, your, your thoughts and whether you feel like you can do small talk or you feel like you're supposed to jump right into your top, you know, the thing you're, you're, you may be there to talk about, you bring yourself into the room and making a space for that and valuing that. I think it's, it's so, it's so important. Um, and even though I think it's scary. I, I remember being scared to go to office hours when I was a student, because it's this one-on-one approach to another person in their space. And it, you know, you're crossing as a literal threshold, a boundary. And I think if you have any social anxiety at all, which I do, which most people do, I think that's a thing, you know, that, that feels like something Um, it's taking a risk and it's kind of investing and, and not knowing how it will go. As we know, these are the risks and the investments that make life really interesting and full and give us the connections we want. Not every encounter is going to work. You could have a very awkward one. You should still try it again tomorrow, maybe with a different faculty member and, and, uh, and you'll have maybe a great experience. Yeah, I think that's really important to remember not to give up. I mean, I also have dealt with a lot of social anxiety. I'm very introverted, very quiet. Um, and I had this whole thing about my anxiety made me one of those students who I'm sure teachers kind of hated this, but I was too shy and too anxious to speak in class. Like they knew I was paying attention. They knew I was very engaged. But I would have several professors kind of mention to me, wait, you know, I was hoping you would speak up because your work is usually really good. And I was like, I'm sorry, it's the anxiety. So I used my office hours as a way to go and show the professor that I was actually paying attention, but I just didn't want to speak in front of like 30 other people. I just wanted to tell my professor. You know, it's, it's very clear that the, the whole idea of participation being something that you're great at, I mean, it's the, the happy idea is that it encourages people to, but people have different personal styles in the world. And I mean, someone who speaks constantly, that's not what you need either. You need a mix of different people in the room who bring different engagements. I have to say, I do, I, I think I do notice when students are engaged when they're not talking. You can often, you can read in faces, even like, even critical expressions, amused expressions, all of these things are still part of the room and are still a way of being engaged and participating. Um, so I'm sure your professors were not bothered about that. Either. <laughs> Oh, good. I hope not. You know, as as someone who hasn't taught and faced the other side, I'm always like, oh, I hope I made a good impression. And it's wonderful when people who 
haven't felt comfortable, start feeling comfortable and give it a shot and then get more comfortable. And, you know, that's, that's nice to see, not because there's some moral, <laughs> moral aspect to it, but because it's, you know, being comfortable in the world is, is nice. And the more spaces I think where you can feel that way, you know, the nicer, the more engagements you can, you can have. Um, it's nice. Yeah, for sure. So at the end of each podcast, I ask each guest if they would read Shelley's beautiful poem, Ozymandias. And then after you've read it, if you could just give us your, you know, quick thoughts on what is what do you think this poem means? Uh, a lot of people talk about this being one of the most sort of well-known and descriptive poems. And I would just like to know, you know, do you agree? Do you think it's as important as people think it is? Sure. Yeah. I am game. I when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Well, yeah, I uh, looked at this poem this morning again and thought about it. It's a funny poem in a lot of ways, I think. I mean, 
I think there are some elements of the meaning that leap right out at you, the sense of the sort of the irony of, of human ambition. But it's a sonnet, and you expect sonnets to do certain things, and to, you expect a turn or a twist at the end. And in a certain way, it's not that kind of sonnet, right? It's sort of, it, the point is right there at the beginning, and it it grows and then, you know, closes up again. I think to me, one of the interesting things about it is that the words are telling you by the end that what you should be thinking of is like a, a vast emptiness around human ambition, but the poem is very crowded. Like, Why isn't it just, why doesn't it just start with two vast and trunkless legs of stone and sand in the desert? Why does it have to be that the, the speaker met somebody, a traveler, this random person from an antique land who tells him all of this stuff? And then like, why too does a sculpture become important, right? So you could just have a kind of portrait of ambition being like sort of colossally thwarted, but instead you have a, a portrait of the ambition and then a, the narrative of the portrait of the ambition and then the poem that is the narrative of the portrait of the ambition. And so that you have these like all these little inset frames that bring you from the idea of presumably a person, an actual Ozymandias, all the way out through these layers of human endeavor to the part where like the, where Shelley writes it and then you read it. And so to me, it says something, it actually says that there are versions of human ambition that are not versions of despair, right? That, that, they, but it's just that the chain looks different than, than what, what the character Ozymandias presents. Um, I think it's a, it's a very, it's a crazier poem than, than the meaning suggests in a certain way. And when I, I was looking at it, I found that there's a line I find very mysterious, which is right in the middle, line eight, I think. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. I can't figure out what that heart is and what it fed. And so I, you know, we don't, this is, we don't have the time or the scope, but I think what I love about poetry is the way you just can engage with it and ask these questions and and have this, this, this process with it. And I'll say one more thing which is that when I when I was reading it, I was thinking of one of my favorite poems by um, Rilke, which is the archaic torso of Apollo. And this is a poem that has for us this, the speaker of the poem staring at a fragmented um, torso of the god Apollo. And out of that fragmentation sees the spur, the provocation to live a much more full um, and much more meaningful life. And which is, you know, I, I feel like I've just put it in a very like silly little box. But the fact is that to me, the two poems are in a way stage very similar um, encounters, but come away so completely differently from the two that I, I would love to think about them together. Yeah, I love hearing what each individual person thinks of this poem because, again, it is mysterious. It is interesting. It's and it's short, too. I mean, I know, yes. you know, there's a billion poems in this world that kind of go on and on and you get this deeper meaning after a while. But this one, no, all we got is 14 lines. It's very mysterious. It starts weirdly. You're like, who's the narrator? Who's being told what? But it is my favorite poem ever. You know, for me, I would always... From people, all these different ideas about it? Yeah, I, I can say definitively, I've learned so much based on having different people explain to me what they think about it. And it's I've started to analyze it in ways that I never, ever would have come to. So it's been a real learning experience for me as well, which I love. And, and it's a window into seeing how people interpret poetry, That's it. which has been fun. 
It's a great idea. And it's it's those poems that, where you can go back over and over and over again, and it will never be the same that are really amazing. Exactly. You know, the way I usually, usually think about it is it's a very political poem. It's a very political statement by Shelley on the nature, like the, the very ephemeral nature of political power and ambition and kind of a memento mori for, for humans, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, so kind of when I think about it that way, that kind of prompts this this last question that I ask all guests on the podcast, which is, if you were to think about our contemporary culture right now, do we have like a modern Ozymandias, you know, something we think is like amazing that with further time and analysis, it's either going to be yes, or it's going to be no, that's a terrible idea. So you mean Ozymandias the guy or Ozymandias the poem? kind of like that gets kind of at the spirit of the poem which is almost like I could probably rephrase this as you know what's like a modern memento mori honestly but it doesn't even have to be that I mean because this I like this question to be very open-ended just you know is there something that we have that's that we think is amazing that won't be it could be an idea a person place whatever Gosh, I, I love the optimism and openness of this question, but what do we, I'm, I'm, I'm such an uh, antiquist, it's hard to, it's very hard to look at your present tense and, and feel the same intensity, I think, for, for what comes at you. So let me think for a moment. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, I do read a fair amount of contemporary poetry in, in the walk of reading, but also of teaching this, this course that stretches from the past into the present. And yet I don't find that I want to suggest there's a one particular poem that really, and so I'm going to, I'm going to like sort of slither out of the, the same. It's to me, it's like the sort of practice and rewriting of the practice of what poetry is that, that like has the kind of um, awakening sense that I get from reading ancient poetry too. So there's a, an indigenous American poet named Lily Long Soldier who wrote this book, but it, in case is a poem called whereas which is it's a play with a document that was um an apology an official apology that was sort of released by congress by the government the federal government several years back which was it was an apology to native american people for, for like decimating them and taking their land and it's a difficult document and the the poem take, you know, takes apart the document as it were and invades it with poetic language. And so, you know, the, the tragedies of, of the historical events, the ambitions and ironies of the document and the, you know, the way that sort of poetry comes and reinvests and recreates all of it. Like the way that is a, the way that it keeps all those time frames together in mind, the ironies, but also the promise that, I mean, so it's, it's, I may, maybe I would say that poem, but also what that poem, the way that poem does this new, new thing, and there will be another one too, that the sort of ongoingness of the way we, we make these things that that's to me very, um, that's mine. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I don't think I've had another answer like that. I mean, but, but then again, you know, I, I get so many different ones, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I've had things ranging from Trump Tower to capitalism to the Pax Americana to tick like cell phones. So, yeah. So then if, I mean, in that framework, then it would be the actual apology itself that then, whereas takes and plays with much as like within Ozymandias, it's, it's the statue of Ozymandias. Right. So, so it's right. It's not to me, it's, I'm, I'm thinking of like a version of 
the poem. And the poem looks at this government, the step the government tried to take that I suppose was supposed to be good and, and shows all of the irony around that effort. But yeah, Trump Towers is good. <laughs> yeah, there's so many good different ones. There's no right answer, no wrong answer. I, that's why I love the open-endedness of it. So just kind of something fun to think about uh, at the end, whether it's happy or sad, uh, you know, who cares? It's just, it's a fun to ask. Here in Chicago, we, we have a very large Trump Tower that, that has the word Trump on it and really big letters. And I just you know, keep wondering why nobody will face that. And I, what I think is you don't have to get all the letters down. You have to just get the T off of it. And then you would have, you would have Ozymandias that thing. Real good. Yeah. Really valid point. So last thing is where can people find you if they want to follow your, your work? Um, well, I, I have an academy.edu page, just I'm like a dork. Yeah, I'm not really on social media. So I have that page where I put up my work as it comes out and uh, you can always reach out. I'm easily findable on the internet. I have a unique name, Google. Great. Well, I'll, I usually sort of link your faculty pages to the show notes so people can find you and figure out, you know, faculty pages I've learned are very helpful because it says what people study and, and what their specializations are. So if people are interested in learning, they have all the information right there. You're fantastic. Everybody should have, even non-faculty. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, we should. I, I wish I did. So thank you so much for joining me. It's been really fun to, to, to get to talk to you for, you know, this past hour, whatever it's been. So um, I do hope you'll, you'll come back and, and talk to us soon. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Take care. <laughs> Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is... Present Ponderings. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.